Hello everybody, this is Andre. Welcome to the Marketing Innovation Podcast Show. Today with us we have a very special guest. His name is Mitch Duckler. He is the founder of the marketing consulting and branding agency Full Search in Chicago, Illinois. Hi Mitch, how's everything going? I am well, thank you Andre. How are you? Very good. It's a big, big pleasure to have you on our podcast show and I'm really excited to talk about a lot of interesting things. So guys, um, what we want to discuss today and what I think is going to be a premiere here on the podcast, so this is very exciting, is branding, brand strategy and how you as business owners or marketing people activating in different sized businesses um, can use branding and branding tactics to increase your companies. But I'll let Mitch uh, take over from here and present a bit um, what he's doing, how he started his agency, as well as his corporate uh, experience in branding. Uh, Mitch, would you like to quickly present uh, yourself and tell us more about what you do? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I have about 25 plus years in the field of brand and marketing strategy, and it's fairly equally split between um, what I would call client side, or in other words, a corporate side, as well as consulting. So I began my career um, on the client side in brand management, working for a couple of global companies, um, specifically Unilever in the personal care space, and then Coca-Cola in the carpeted and soft drink business. And um, there I worked in a variety of roles, brand and product management, as well as consumer insights um, and customer marketing. And after about 10 years, I was looking for a change and uh, made a switch into consulting. But consulting uh, very much oriented towards those same topic areas of brand and marketing strategy. So what I've done for about the past 10, 12 years has been working with clients to help them grow their brands and leverage their brands as very strong strategic business assets. Amazing. Very interesting. So um, tell us a bit more about the clients that you have working with uh, from the agency side like ever since you started in the past 12 years obviously it's been a shift in the market as well when we were thinking about how com consumers co communicate with the brands uh, I'm sure. sure I mean and also this is going to be one of our discussions a bit later um, but um, what did you feel uh, has changed in the way that consumers interacted with brands and how companies had to adapt to this change? Well, I think the biggest change and, and actually a big impetus behind um, uh, the book that I'm about to come out with is that the power or the, the uh, level of influence uh, between consumers and manufacturers, I think, has shifted in recent years. And a lot of it has been driven by technology and communication information, in particular, the Internet. So. In the early days of brand management, for example, manufacturers or, or brand marketers really had all of the control in the equation, right? There was a very simple, straightforward distribution uh, network and uh, three broadcast television stations, in, in, at least in the United States. And, um, you know, th there was no cable, there was no satellite, there was no super uh, information superhighway or internet. And, Really what that allowed is for manufacturers or brand managers to kind of control the dialogue much more so than they are today. Uh, today, conversely, with the, um, the emergence of the Internet and content marketing and social media and everything that goes along with it, consumers have wrestled away a lot of that power and uh, it really is challenge marketers to to be much more influ uh, influencers as opposed to dictators uh, in a command and control sense, if you will. Yep. Okay. Um, so going back to 
you know, um, with the access to a lot of information and the power being on the consumer side now mm-hmm. to find out yeah. more about the brands and for the brands to basically try to uh, compete in this m- environment that is much more open than it used to be. Um, what would you say are some meaningful ways of that brands can um, differentiate themselves in front of their markets and what they can do in order to to take advantage of the opportunities that come together with this competition, but also with the internet? Well, I think there's there's a couple of, of things that um, I would say. First is brand marketers need to think about differentiation um, in, in a much more expansive way uh, than they have in the past. So traditionally, conventional wisdom would say that your positioning or your point of difference should be in the form of a customer benefit, right? That's traditional marketing 101. Um, it goes back to the days of recent trout, um, you know, positioning the battle for your mind, right? And it's all about you develop a brand positioning and a promise that has to be a customer benefit. But to be honest, um, a lot of categories, the benefit, the customer benefit, the benefit that the customers are seeking rather is universal, Right. So that's the antithesis of differentiation. So you have brands within a category that are all chasing a a common benefit. But if you think about different ways to establish differentiation, for example, you can think about how. Right. Not just the if the end benefit is the what the process or the means is the how. And that can be another way to think about differentiation. So you deliver a benefit, but the way you deliver it, the unique way you deliver it can be your point of difference. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. So that's, yep, that's one example. Um, another way to do it is your why. So there's been a lot in the press lately about purpose branding you've probably heard about and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, right? Yep. Um, goes back to Simon Sinek's famous TED Talk, you know, start with the why. Yeah, yeah. So there's exactly. a lot of purpose. free circles. Exactly, exactly. And, and uh, Patagonia is a great example of a why brand, right? They are all about sustainability and improving the environment. And so it's not it's not a customer benefit, it's not a what, it's really about a purpose or a why, and, and that's really their point of difference. Um, and a third I would say is the who, right? There's a lot of uh, cus- there's a lot of brands that are really defined first and foremost by their customer target, right? Lifestyle brands, for example. Mountain Dew is a great example of that, the soft drink uh, the beverage Mountain Dew, right, which is all about extreme sports and video game lovers. Um, you know, people that really kind of get off on, on you know, establishing uh, on highs, right? And it just, you know, very strong physical and emotional um, excitement. So they have built a brand entirely around a target audience of, of you know, extreme sports enthusiasts, for example. So those are all different ways, different ways to think about differentiation. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I would say. Then the second is, how do you take that point of difference, that brand positioning, and manifest in every aspect of the brand, the brand experience, the way you grow the brand, and and extend it into different categories and so forth, using that unique point of difference Mm -hmm. as inspiration for those different elements of activation. Mm Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so um, let's see, uh, because ultimately we'd like to be able to offer, uh, you know, the, you guys that are listening to us as well, uh, some sort of um, applicable advice that you can implement in your, um, in your own businesses. So, Mitch, let's say for somebody that has a 
rather small to medium business, maybe they are just starting out or maybe they have a couple of years down the line. Now, obviously, you have been through this journey a lot, like quite a while ago. So um, guys, Mitch is also an entrepreneur. He's been running his own agency for 12 years now. He's working with uh, a lot of enterprise clients, um, Fortune 500 companies. So he has a lot of experience in the branding, uh, like corporate branding type of um, space. So Mitch, what would you say for a company that is, you know, a couple of years old, um, some things that they should definitely be looking at doing in their messaging and in their branding in order to establish their place in the market? Well, I I would say two things. Uh, One is when you think about how you want to be positioned, you know, think about it from two different angles. One is what I would say inside out. So what are your business objectives? What are you trying to accomplish? And what sort of unique competencies do you have, right? So what makes you different? What makes you better? What makes you special? Um, That's kind of the inside Mm -hmm. out, right? But then you marry that with what I would call the outside in or the, the, the customer perspective. So what are the type, what sort of things are your customers, your potential market looking for from the type of products or services that you offer? And it's really when you look at it from both of those angles, right? What is it that the customer is seeking? Uh, what sort of unmet needs are there that you can fulfill? And then what are the competencies, those unique strengths or uh, competitive advantage that you bring um, to the market that you can offer? And it's really in that intersection of the two that you kind of have that magical sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, uh, you briefly mentioned about, uh, you know, the augmented product benefits and that brands should not focus only about, you know, a feature or a need that, like a specific need that they um, fulfill, but also about the augmented product benefits and the experience of the customer with that product. So um, tell us more about that or tell us about some examples you have encountered in your, you know, recent years of a brand or a couple of brands that have done this very well and the insight that maybe our listeners could take home and implement in their business as well or think about? Sure. Well, there's a couple of um, examples that um, that I reference um, in, in the book, for example, um, in terms of customer experience. And, and first of all, what I would say is um, instead of thinking about customer experience, think about brand experience. And, and I think that's something that I find that uh, companies make a mistake. They think about what they call, and, and I've heard this very often throughout my years in brand management, the ideal customer experience, as if there is only one, right? Um, and, and then and, and what, ma- what marketers often tend to do or brand managers tend to do is they, they go out and they research what is that experience. Sorry for interrupting, but this is just a question that yeah. popped up in my head and maybe it can help us develop even more sure. on the subject. Would you think that the brand's think about ideal customer brand experience because they have an ideal customer persona so would you say that this is the cause why they try to match the experience to this ideal customer persona or would you say they're not linked um well they they think about they tend to think about they do research and in fact absent of the brand so for example if they are looking for if it's a hotel brand right they might ask about what are you looking for from a hotel stay, right? In terms of what's the check-in experience, what should that be like? Uh, what should the common space area look like and feel like an offer? What about room service? How about amenities like a workout facility? How should that be? And they do that 
without necessarily a brand lens. And one example that I, that I mentioned in the book is, um, and it's actually a client of mine, Hyatt Hotels. They have a select service brand called um, Hyatt Place. Um, so as, as the name would imply, select service means it's not full service, right? It, it, it's, uh, it's limited service. And when they went about defining their customer, their brand experience, they had the, they applied that lens, right? They didn't ask, they didn't try to strive for an ideal or optimal experience because they arguably would have over-delivered, right? And, and actually delivered an experience that is not consistent with the premise of that brand. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, super, super good insight. So um, taking this into, you know, the modern age when most communication is being done digitally and, uh, you know, most of the interaction between brands is also being done digitally unless, you know, um, they are business to consumer brands like, uh, you know, beverages or food and then um, the communication eventually translates in the direct purchase of that product and consuming it and so on. Um, what would you say that, given, the, let's say, one of our listeners now, uh, they have a product or a product-based business and they sell that product, um, what would, and they know exactly how their brand ideally should look like. What would you say is or are good ways of uh, using this brand positioning uh, as a guidepost for digital activation and for transposing that whole brand online? You know, th that's a great question. The, um, and, and the answer is it's fairly similar to experience in general, and that is start, start with the brand and think about it. when you activate your brand in the digital realm, it's no different than if you activate it um, in the analog space, right? When, whenever you do anything from a marketing perspective, whether it's advertising or promotion, um, any type of, of communication or effort, right? You start with your brand positioning and you reflect that in every aspect of that activation element. And it should be no different from a digital perspective either. But what we have found over the years is digital tends to be very tactically oriented, right? So people think very much about transactions, about, um, you know, activities, you know, whether it's posts or comments or shares, and, and they, they think they tend to think about it in a much more tactical versus strategic manner. And again, very often absent of the brand. Um, there is because of the immediate feedback of digital and the, the ability to to drive transaction, I think there's a temptation on the part of marketers to act in a way that is very transactional, as opposed to relationship. Um, and as, as opposed to brand building. So what I coach clients to do in the digital space is, is to balance both. Yes, you know, digital has a unique ability to drive transactions in the short term, but you need to do so in a very responsible way, in a way that also builds your the long-term equity of your brand. Otherwise, that brand equity begins to erode. If you are doing things that, that sacrifice the long-term brand building equity, Right in in favor of short term transactions, right. So you need to act in a way uh, in the digital uh, space that is very consistent with your brand, or or like in, in any, any other type of marketing activity. Over time, you begin to erode that brand equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one issue though that we found uh, at least some of our clients had in acting in this sort of brand oriented awareness type of uh, you know way digitally is that. Many times it's very hard to 
as opposed to the tactical way, uh, it's very hard to assess the results uh, in terms of you know brand awareness or these very soft metrics uh, to linked to the brand. While as if you want to track, let's say, transactions or engagement or these sort of things, then these are very easily traceable. And because they are very easily traceable, um, they are much easier to maybe pitch to senior leadership when they have to do to make decisions in terms of budgeting or um, effectiveness of marketing activities and so on and so forth. So, you know, for the people that have this issue of tracking the, you know, the softer metrics of branding and of brand growth, what would be some of the advice that you'd give them or some of the insights that you have found are useful in order to justify investing in this area more? Yeah, another great question. It is it is very difficult to measure the softer, if you will, the, the softer, more intangible aspects of brand building, right? And and especially in digital. And, and you're absolutely right, you know, because digital is so uniquely qualified to give you metrics and feedback that are more transactional in nature. I think that's what marketers tend to defer to. And um, there, there really are no easy answers to h- how you can actually track brand metrics um, in the digital realm. Um, I think there are that there are some strides being made in the market research uh, arena that that will make that different in the future. But um, at a minimum, I, th- I think just doing some basic brand tracking um, in terms of you know what are the key attributes of your brand positioning. Right, that that you want, that you need to follow, and that you need to win on versus your competitors. If you're going to establish that positioning, you know, make sure you're tracking those, and then you know correlating it with your digital activity. And and you know as you begin to activate or continue to activate in the digital realm, are you messaging around the key points and reinforcing the the key aspects of your brand positioning? And are those being reflected in? your metrics, right? Are you beginning to see a positive uptick in some of those attributes that you're trying to establish as as your brands? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also I think um, one of the other things that maybe you guys listening can use uh, in trying to track or to justify this investment into, you know, growing the actual brand would be to judge the results of these activities in comparison to more tactical activities that you might be doing or more transactional um campaigns that you are running. So I think that, Mitch, this is also something that you have just touched on when you said to try to strike a balance between the two, uh, right? So judging in parallel and trying to link some of the activities to some of the results from the more tactical campaigns, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, I I remember reading a quote, um, and I, I don't recall who it was from, but they said, you know, when you think about those two, you know, even if you can strike a 70-30 balance, right, kind of a theoretical balance, but, you know, 70% transaction and, and 30%, you know, longer term brand building, the, even that is is a pretty good mix, right, That and, and, a good in, and a good allocation of your investment dollar. You know, yes, we, we realize that we live in a very um, pragmatic business environment, right, and it's all about bottom line in dollars and cents, and, and you want a very positive ROI on any investment you make, right? And digital activation is no exception. Um, but even if you can think about 30%, you know, 30 cents on every dollar, if you will, going toward, you know, something that's reinforcing your brand equity and building a relationship with your customers as opposed to just driving a short-term transaction, you know, 
will will serve you well in the long run. Yeah, for sure. And I think that uh, some of, you know, I mean, much of the value that this brings also can be seen in the rays of influencer marketing and how people tend to build relationships or to, to bring to life relationships with brands and other people follow based on, you know, influencers. Now, again, this is a, <laughs> we have to use our judgment when we um, make a statement in terms of that. But generally speaking, uh, paid influencer um paid influencer partnership, let's say, with a brand should be, I mean, the influencer and the brand should share the same values, etc., etc., and then the community should judge the brand in the filter of the influencer's values and, you know, considering these should match with the influencers. Uh, but I think that, again, here, um, this personal relationship of the brand with the customers is very important in generating that transaction in the end. Yeah, and Andre, I, yeah, I would add to that, um, if you think about it, Digital is provides a very unique opportunity to do that, um, to establish more of a relationship than um, than traditional advertising uh, than traditional marketing. For example, advertising tends to be very one way. You know, television advertising is is uh, unidirectional, right? You put a you film a thirty second commercial and you put it out there, and and the the viewer or the consumer consumes it, right? They see it. Digital, you know, has provides the opportunity to be much more personal, much more customized in your message um, and much more interactive in nature. So it inherently provides an opportunity for more interaction and more relationship building than traditional media. Mm -hmm. For sure. And um, then again, uh, maybe an extension of this discussion that I know we were briefly talking about as well before. before the episode, but um, you know, many times, and I guess that the more the the bigger the brands, the more this becomes valid, and maybe even 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 more uh, in the hospitality business or businesses to do with services as well as the actual product. Um, how would you say um, a brand can reflect a differentiated brand positioning through the entire customer experience? So that would be from the maybe the digital first touch point to maybe making a booking or the first point of contact with that brand more physically and then post-purchase as well, interactions with the staff uh, employed by that brand, etc., etc. What are some insights that you have discovered? Yeah, so what we te- when we work with clients on, on brand experience, what we typically do, um, well, we start with what you just referred to, right? As you think about the customer journey, you think about it in three phases, pre-purchase, purchase, and post-purchase, right? And Which is, I think, what you were alluding to. Um, and you start with I just identifying, you know, cataloging all of the different touch points that make up the entire experience, you know, across those three, three dimensions, you know, pre-purchase, purchase, and post-purchase. And then think about each of those touch points in, um, in terms of a of three different um, metrics. One is how important is that particular touch point to the overall experience? Because not all touch points are considered, are are created equal rather, right? Some are a little bit more important than others. So how important is that particular touch point to the overall experience? The second thing is what would, what is the gap between the, um, between where you are today and delivering your promise on that touch point and what the aspiration should be for that touch point. So in other words, your promise, your brand promise, 
uh, inherently has a certain sets a certain expectation for what that touch point should deliver. What is the gap, right? How 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 big of a gap is there between where you are today and where you want to be, right? And then third, how difficult or challenging or time consuming would it be to close that gap? Um, and when you think about those three things, how important is it, how big of a gap, and how challenging would it be to close that gap, you, you can start to prioritize where in the customer experience you want to focus and, and where you want to you know, focus your attention and your dollars on making improvements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super cool. Because um, we know that many of you guys are entrepreneurs or working in s- small to medium-sized businesses. Um, Mitch is also one of us in terms of, you know, entrepreneur. He, he has started his company. He's been through the journey. He has worked in businesses before that. So he has, you know, the experience of both worlds. Now, um, Mitch, what was your experience of becoming an entrepreneur? Like, what made you want to step up and open your own business? Uh, what was, you know, the inspiration behind it? What were some challenges that you had to face when you opened it? <clears throat> yeah, great questions. Um, and, and I think you bring up a good point. I've really had the privilege, I guess, or um, the honor of being able to work on both sides of the fence. So most of my clients, um, as I pointed out earlier, are Fortune 500 you know, publicly traded companies, some of the biggest companies in the world, like an ExxonMobil, which I, I believe is, is still the largest uh, company in the world. Right? But yet the companies that I've worked with and for tend to be very small. Um, and entrepreneurial. Even before I founded my own firm, I was in a consulting firm of several hundred people, which um, isn't necessarily an entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial company, but certainly on on a far smaller scale than a lot of my clients. So I've had the opportunity to kind of look at business through both lenses. My clients, which tend to be very very large, and then the firms I've worked for, and and my own firm as well, um, smaller and. One of the things that I do like about the entrepreneurial path is just the ability to um, cut through a lot of the bureaucracy um, that tends to exist in larger companies. You know, I, I find um, very often I can almost get frustrated and feel the frustration of some of my <laughs> large corporate clients and their in, their inability to move in an agile manner um, and to respond quickly to cha- to changing market conditions. And, and I think one of the advantages of being an entrepreneur, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to, is just the ability to make changes on the fly, right? You're not, you know, to, to kind of, you're, you're not changing uh, you, you can change direction so much more quickly and nimbly than you can in a larger company. And that's something that I, I really do appreciate about being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So in terms of your company, uh, how big are you guys at the moment and what are your plans for growth? So we have um, roughly a dozen consultants and our, and our model is, um, and our point of difference, if you will, is really is we are all senior level consultants, right? So a lot of consulting firms, including ones that I used to work for, um, had kind of the the, uh, the pyramid model, right? Of, of um, you know of uh, partners, and then you know the part and senior partners that do a lot of the selling and the business development. They pitch a project um, 
they win a project and then the clients never see them again, right? It's, they they turn they turn their junior level team with um you know with uh, MBAs that are maybe just a few years out of business school and and those are the only people we ever see. Our model is very different, right? So um, everybody is pretty much like me. All of my colleagues are twenty five to thirty plus year veterans. We have no junior level people. Um, the people who sell you the the project work are the ones that do it. So. Um, that that's really our point of difference, and and um, I think a lot of clients really come to appreciate that. That we're not going to walk away after we sell the project. We're going to be there, and we're going to actually be the ones doing the work. And that's a model that's worked fairly well for us. Um, in terms of growth, I think it does limit our growth, right? I think we we only grow so large when we have a model and and a mindset like that. But um, we. Still, you know, our our goal is really just to do first class work for you know top notch clients and and not and and grow, but not necessarily try to become a a five hundred or one thousand uh, consultant firm. Or we're not looking to become the next McKinsey, if you will. I, I think our growth goals are a little bit more modest. Yeah, yeah, no, but I guess that together with this sort of uh, small, like like a bit smaller team, uh, and also with the degree of proficiency around your company, I think. Uh, there's that personal satisfaction of you know being sure that everybody on your team it works closely together, and then also that you can almost always guarantee the same quality of work for any of your new clients, absolutely, uh, no matter the size of them. Great point. Yes, ex- exactly. That we're very very focused on on client satisfaction and quality control. We don't take on projects that we have any doubt that we can. Um, exceed expectations in terms of, of quality of our, of our um, output. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Yeah, this is something that we strive towards as well with our uh, digital agency. So yeah. again, we, we try as much as possible to um, get in our team people that are, so for example, I'm also a director like you are, you know, managing partner. So yeah. um, always involved with closing the deals and doing the negotiations and the contracts. But what we try to do is not run away after after you know like the new client is uh on board but also you know support them with implementation of a campaign so all the way to the end being there for the meetings showing up for you know whether there are urgencies or new campaigns that have to be delivered and so on and um this is our aspiration as well you know like yeah. 10 years from now to be that sort of company that we don't want to go to a thousand people either but we want to have a team that we are sure you know when in any of them are coming on the table uh, and are responsible of you know a project for us to be able to guarantee the top-notch quality uh, you know for any client exactly and, and what what I would also say just you know, being very balanced <laughs> in my feedback and I'm sure you've realized it too and probably a lot of your listeners is there's drawbacks right to to that size too so one of the things I miss about working for larger companies right and like I said I've worked with the Unilevers and the Coca-Cola's is you don't have the resources at your disposal that you do with a larger company and um, you you do have to be a lot more resourceful um, I find myself doing things at times that I don't really want to do that I feel are, are a little bit more menial or, or um, um, you know, t- uh, administrative in nature because I don't have those resources. And, and But yet that's really kind of the, the downside, I guess, of being an entrepreneur, right? You probably have to wear a lot more hats. You have to do things that um, that maybe you would have other departments or other functions in a larger company do, but you take the good with the bad, right? 
Yeah, and also you know, like that's what、uh, makes life more fun because <laughs> you you never know what the yeah what the yeah it does. <laughs>、uh, <laughs> it does. It's a great point. Super cool. Okay.、Um, so going back to the branding discussion, I think this was an amazing, you know, amazing topic. I'm so happy that we we did it. It was a premiere on our podcast, you know, fo- focusing on this subject. So I'm very glad and very thankful for you being on our episode.、Um, Do you feel there will be any other topics or extensions to the topics that we could delve a bit more on?、Um, no, I think you know. Again, and, and I'm thinking back to also the various chapters of the book, which really talk about all of the different ways to think about、um, taking a brand, a very strong brand positioning, and manifesting it throughout the entire business.、Um, one of the things we talk a lot about in the book is brand extendability, and I, and I do think that. So once you have a brand, you know how do you grow it? How do you take advantage of all of the equity that you built in that brand and monetize it、um, in in different ways, right? And through new product introductions and new service introductions and so forth. And one and one of the things I talk about in the book is encouraging marketers to think about their brands much more、um, holistically, right? So typically, when when brand managers think about you know how, how do I grow a brand. You know, they think about it in very functional and um, and、uh, what I would say、um, tangible terms, right? So、uh, we are a, we are a, a let's say a, a cookie or a cracker brand. Therefore, the only types of, br- of products we can come out with are other cookies and crackers, right? It's inherently limiting. But when you think about a brand on those more intangible. Aspects that we talked about earlier—the persona, the attitude, the emotional benefits that they represent—I think that gives you a lot of permission to grow much more in a much more transformational、uh, manner, right? Great point. And、uh, you know, you—I think brand managers very often play it a little too safe, right? They, for good reason and good intention, they have guardrails, right? They that their brand positioning serves as guardrails. Which is a good thing, but if it's taken too far, I think it limits your growth and comes up. You you end up with having very uninspiring ho hum line extensions, right? Because you you aren't thinking about your brand as holistically、um, as you can be. And your brand, I always tell clients, your brand shouldn't only be your brand position shouldn't only be a guardrail, right? To you know for for extension, it should also be inspiration. For for how you can extend your brand to be relevant in in multiple different categories.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing point. And actually,、uh, you know, thinking about branding back to you know the origins, this is so true because you know ultimately the success the success of the company is how easily can they、uh, adapt if the market situation changes, or how easily can they can they come with a new product to fulfill a demand. Or to pivot if that specific niche that they are into doesn't work anymore. And when they're gonna do that, it's very important for the brand to be still there, so the customers still identify with that and are able to transition to the new product if it's something that still appeals to the same, you know, person like customer group. Yeah, exactly, <clears throat> exactly. I think it's a great, it's a good point. It's.、Um, It's not only a way to identify new opportunities for growth, but it's also, to your point, a hedge, right? And and、um, if there are certain limitations or a, a downturn in certain product categories, and your brand is diversified and and can pursue other、uh, markets or other、um, business opportunities, you know, it's all the better.、Mm-hmm. Super great point. Awesome. 
Mitch, thanks so much for today. It was really a big pleasure to have you here and a really insightful talk. Guys listening, I hope that you also have found you know, uh, some great and valuable insight here and you are going to go there and you are going to apply it to your business. Uh, if you have any further questions or anything, let us know. Uh, we're going to put in the podcast description links to uh, Mitch's book, uh, Mitch's business and also where you can find him. You can connect on LinkedIn as well. Um, and uh, if you have a bigger business or you feel that Mitch's services could or you could work with Mitch in helping you grow your brand, then be sure to get in touch. I'm sure that Mitch will be happy to uh, to discuss more with you um, and help you get uh, to the desired brand that you'd like to be. Um, until then, Mitch, a great pleasure. Thanks a lot again. Thank you, Andre. It was wonderful uh, meeting you and I uh, appreciate the time and, and hope that your, your listeners found this uh, informative and, and please do feel free to reach out to me with any questions or if there's anything or anything, any way I can be of service to you guys. Thanks a lot. And until next time, have an amazing day. Speak soon. Bye.